Hi, welcome to War Christ. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today I'm joined by Stanley Harawas. He's an American theologian, ethicist, and public intellectual. Uh, Stanley was a long-term professor at Duke University in America. He has also um, sought to recover the virtues for understanding the nature of the Christian life. This search has led him to emphasize the importance of the church, as well as narrative for understanding Christian existence. His work cuts across disciplinary lines as he's in conversation with systematic theology, philosophical theology and ethics, political theory, as well as the philosophy of social science and medical ethics. Um, just to begin then, Stanley, can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the key currents in your life that helped form your character? Well, I come from working class folks in America. My father was a bricklayer. He had five brothers that were bricklayers. I had no choice but to be a bricklayer. Uh, so uh, I was taken out on the job when I was very young and taught the laboring skills until I was about 15. And then uh, my father started uh, teaching me how to lay brick. So I laid brick all the way through college, the way I financed my education. Um, the other aspect of my background is uh, my folks were um, evangelical Methodist. And um, we were the kind of church that uh, you could join the church on Sunday morning, but you had to be saved on Sunday night. And that meant you dedicated your life to God after singing 24 times, uh, <laughs> I surrender all. Uh, it had to be at Sunday night. And I just never felt um, moved by the Spirit. And I um, thought finally that if God wasn't going to save me, at least I could dedicate my life uh, to God. And I didn't know what that meant, but uh, it meant that I had to schedule going to college. No one in my family had ever gone to college. Mm -hmm. And by the time I'd gone to college, I'd begun to think that most of the religious stuff was uh, incoherent. But um, um, uh, as I went to school, um, I major. I was the philosophy major at Southwestern, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I learned I wasn't smart enough to be an atheist yet. And so I went to Yale Divinity School, thinking that uh, I would be a um, uh, if I were to be a Christian, I'd be a liberal Christian, not autilic. Uh, but I'd begun to think that the Holocaust was the decisive uh, development that suggested Christianity was uh, insufficiently uh, moral. And um, in that process, uh, I discovered it wasn't the Protestant liberals that, that reacted against the destruction of the Jews. It was uh, Bart and Bonhoeffer. And uh, so I started reading Bart and the rest is history. That's enough background. Marvelous. And um, can you tell us about why Bart was so inspirational or influential for you? Uh, it was because uh, Bart uh, embodied the joy of theological convictions in a way that challenged the um, pietistic presumptions of so much of Protestant Christianity. 
marvelous. Um, so today I'd love to look at some of your own works. I'd love to start with um, the character of virtue, letters to a godson. So in each of uh, 16 letters for the occasion of your godson Lawrence Wells' baptism, and every year there I are... wish other people would start with that book and ask so <laughs> what well, one would like. <laughs> Excellent. So um, in that one, you contemplate a specific virtue and its meaning for a child growing year by year in the Christian faith, writing in uh, virtues like kindness, courage, humility, joy, and all sorts of things. Can you tell us why you thought that it was important to share these virtues and um, in this way and why it's so important for older Christians to communicate effectively to younger people as well? I tried to think about how um, the background is, is that I was Laurie's godfather, one of the godfathers. And I said, I'm honored to do it, but I never know what to do about being a godfather. You don't take God seriously. What do you say? And Sam, being Sam, said, I'll give you an assignment. Every year at the anniversary of his baptism, you're to write commending a virtue. So I tried to uh, correlate his age placement with certain virtues that I thought were appropriate to that time in his life. And so the, uh, I started with kindness because children so oftentimes are remarkably cruel. <laughs> uh, and so I thought that that would be uh, the kind to, to talk about how learning to pet the dog uh, uh, gently is a way that one becomes kind. Uh, so you never become virtuous by trying to be virtuous. The virtues right on the backs of practices that are uh, uh, significant. Wonderful. And um, I want to ask you with this emphasis on virtue, why has that been so important throughout your life uh, more broadly and throughout your work? Because um, I've been reading the Haras Reader recently, and uh, it seems to be something that's a common thread, right? And I'd love to ask you a bit about that. Um, when I was in Divinity Graduate School, um, the most um, uh, attractive option in Christian ethics was known as situation ethics, articulated by, jo by Joseph Fletcher. And uh, I mean, what would you do under X and Y circumstances? And I began to think that that was an extraordinarily um, uh, limited way to think about the nature of the moral life. So um, uh, I was reading Aristotle and Aristotle is all about the virtues. And so I thought, well, let's try that out. And so 50 years later, we're still trying that out. Marvelous. Um, and I think you do, you go through right th through to people like Alistair McIntyre and oh, make yeah. really interesting critiques of yeah. figures and make it interesting. I think that's part of the appeal for me. I find people like McIntyre quite dry and hard to read, whereas I find your work a bit more <laughs> digestible, personally. Oh, that doesn't mean mine is more simplistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's a healthy balance, to be honest. I hope so. <laughs> um, it's just, just brilliant. Wonderful. And um, I want to ask you about the work of theology generally, then. You have got a book, The Work of Theology. In this book, you return to the basics uh, of doing theology. How did you really learn to think theologically distinct from how we usually think, I guess? 
in a kind of modern secularist um, way of understanding? I'm being forced to. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, one of the images of modern theology is we need to translate our uh, fundamental moral vocabulary into other vocabularies that are more readily understood. I think that's a deep mistake. You need, you don't need to translate the vocabulary into a different vocabulary. You need to have the soul transformed to speak Christian well. So, uh, I'm, um, the work of theology is the work of transformation of the self. I think something too that really comes across is the centrality of Christ and Christology. Um, that seems to be another thing that I think is important because so many of our um, theologians, as you, I think, suggest in your work, are trying to be philosophers as it's progressed in the Western world. Is that fair to say? That's not the job of the theologian, not our vocation. That's not our vocation to think theologically. Is that fair to say? Is that, does that make sense, the way I phrased it? Um, the, um, the temp I mean, Bart once said that the great temptation of for a theologian is to um, uh, think that theology is a form of philosophy. And it can't be a form of philosophy, though philosophically, um, issues are all over theology that we need philosophical reflection to, to uh, develop. But um, theology cannot be philosophy because uh, we depend for the meaning of our uh, language on a Palestinian Jew <laughs> who didn't have to happen. So the very contingency of um, our faith uh, means that you always are starting uh, in particular convictions. Excellent. And um, how does theology change how we understand things like time, for example, especially, um, I guess, in this day and age where everyone is kind of hurried and um, we've got notions, I think, of progress and view time that way, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. How do we um, understand things like time from a more distinctly Christian theological perspective? Our time is an eschatological time. And that means that you, um, you don't know what time you're in until uh, God tells you. And uh, you see that embodied in the liturgical form of Christian worship. We're coming to the end of ordinary time soon to start Advent. That's our time. Uh, it's not the time of the secular uh, uh, Greenwich Village. <laughs> yep, thank you for that, Sally. And um, you also talk about, you've got a chapter, how we're not to be political theologians, as you describe it. Can you tell us a bit about that, what you mean there? 
I, um, of course, any serious theological proposal is political. Uh, but um, the idea that um, theology uh, has to um, engage politics on its own terms is what I'm trying to challenge in, the, in that uh, piece, or at least one of the things I'm trying to do in that uh, essay. I'm, I'm pleased that you read the work of theology. I think it's an important book, but I don't know that anyone else does. <laughs> Excellent. I think something too that is really interesting, the way you phrase it and have us to understand is that you say um, it's not so much to do with our action, it's things Christ has already established a certain renewal of politics that we just have to live out. And you talk about in relation to nonviolence. Um, yeah, yeah that's, there's a sentence that I began uh, more in the American difference with it. Um, um, it is not that we must work to establish peace, but Christ has established peace, our job is to live according to what he has done. And uh, that's a word that uh, is not received happily by many. Yeah, I mean, um, and um, what does it mean to be theologically funny? So I think this is something that really comes across in your work. And also, if anyone ever watches YouTube videos where you've given different um, speeches or anything come across very funny. What does it mean to be theologically funny then? Uh, it means that uh, one can recognize the absurdity <laughs> of our presumptions that uh, we're in control and uh, exactly uh, good. What, to be funny means to recognize that uh, we're not in control and uh, Therefore, we can have a hell of a lot of fun in the world in which we find ourselves. Beautiful. And um, I think that there was something else that you said, which I thought was funny and interesting. You said that sometimes the best we can do is to make interesting mistakes. I thought that was a very good way to phrase it. Okay, just moving on to another book then, if we may. Um, the Holy Spirit, you've written about with a former guest of my channel, actually, the excellent Will Williman. Um, why do so many Christians fail to realize what baptism really means and what do you think um, it, it was worth reminding us of? Because we let cute overcome the uh, seriousness of uh, what it means to make a child uh, part of the body of Christ in a way that that child's uh, existence is um, uh, is threatened. By the way, that's uh, that's hope that you just saw. <laughs> the earlier one was faith. Is there love too? I'm sorry. Is there love as well? No, no there's only two. Faith and love. <laughs> Bless them. Very nice. What does it mean to become part of the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit? Did you describe it in that book? means other people get to tell me what to do. <laughs> it's just that simple. Excellent. And I guess um, 
I, I can't really phrase this way probably, but the right people get to tell you what to do, maybe. Yeah. Or, maybe. And it's hard to know what to the right. <laughs> Fair enough. And um, I guess for me, coming from a more secularist mindset growing up, because I only really reverted to Christian faith whenever I was older, I think the way I appreciate it and appreciate your work is that it f- does free you from um, those other organizations and things like that that we have to belong to and put on certain facades and um, talked about this a bit with Will as well. And I say now, especially at this time when people are putting all their stock in politics and belonging to different political tribes and so on, I think being part of the body of Christ um, through the Holy Spirit is precisely what we, we always talk about, but never really maybe think about in this way is that it is, does save you. It, it saves you in that respect as well as in other ways, if that makes sense. So you've talked about this um, a lot in your work too. So about this individualistic mindset and subjectivist accounts, uh, even within the church and how that de- determines how people view the work of the Holy Spirit. What is, what's wrong with some of those um, more individualistic and subjectivist accounts that you've like to, you've sought? Well, my way to put it is modernity is the time in which it was trying to create people who believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe that, uh, you can test it by, do you think you ought to have someone, hold someone responsible for decisions they made when they did not know what they were doing? No, people because such decisions embody the idea that I am free as long as I am being able to make up my own mind. The difficulty with that is no one pointed out that the story you should have, no story except the story you chose when you had no story. No one, um, you didn't make that up on your own. It was given to you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the reason why fate is such an important category in modernity because uh, we are fated to be free, particularly in America. And then we fail to notice that the freedom that we've been given is in fact a form of determinism. So that's my way of trying to explicate the quote individualism, because individualism leads to um, extraordinary social conformity and uh, how to uh, avoid that is a deep challenge. Mm-hmm. And um, why is it so essential then to rediscover God's triune nature for the church and um, how can this transform us? Well, um, I would think um, what it does is help us discover um, um, our need for one another in a way that um, in a way that um, we see the illusion 
uh, we should have no story except the story we chose when we had no story. And we want, therefore, um, to be in contact with brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that they help us discover what it means to be part of that story. Excellent. And um, we've talked about the eschatological nature of the church. So you've written about approaching the end, eschatological reflection on church politics and life, covering some of the ground we've already touched upon. Thank you, Marie. <laughs> in part one of that book, um, Theological Matters, you directly address the eschatological character of the Christian faith. What is the significance of eschatological reflection, if we might call it that, for helping the church to um, negotiate the contemporary world? Uh, the eschatological commitments of the church presuppose that Christianity has a telos. And we have a telos because we have a um, beginning. And so the significance of creation should never be left behind because uh, the very notion that we are created um, is a challenge to the presumption that it's up to us to make our lives meaningful. Our lives are meaningful because we're God's good creatures within a fallen world. Wonderful. And um, in part two, church and politics, you deal with the political reality of the church in light of the end, addressing issues such as the divided character of the church and the imperative for Christian unity and um, the necessary practice of sacrifice. What's the double meaning then of the end that we talk about um, that you hope to return our attention towards and how does this then transfigure the present and our everyday? Um, the double character of the end is there is an end, it's called death, but there is also a beginning, it's called death. <laughs> and uh, um, how to see what it means to be part of God's good creation in a way that there is a kingdom of ends um, is, um, uh, is there to be seen, but we are no good at seeing it. Wonderful. And um, in part three, you talk about life and death. Uh, what then does an eschatological approach to life tell us about how to understand suffering, how to form habits of virtue, and then ultimately how to die? Well, you can't answer that question in principle because it depends so much on who we are, where we are. Um, what we're undergoing. Um, I think um, my way of putting it is one of the great things that Christianity gives you to do is something to do. <laughs> Most people don't have anything to do. Uh, so uh, to make suffering something that we do 
rather than happens to us is a great challenge within the Christian faith. Excellent. I think uh, then on the flip side of that too, I, I believe you've talked about this, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but how in America, for example, there's such a strong denial of death that this then results in people trying to live out their hero projects because they want to be something to do. I guess it reiterates the fact that we're teleological creatures, but the they don't know they have a talus. They think they're nihilists or something, but they right. um, order themselves to the political order and things like that. Is that fair to say? I think so. That's the reason why Nietzsche is such a great uh, compliment to Christianity. Because mm -hmm. he, 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 he wanted to defeat it. <laughs> because if he didn't, um, uh, he would be incoherent. Is um is Nietzsche then? I guess this is a complicated one, but is he kind of the opposite of Christ in this way? I guess he wanted to by calling himself the Antichrist and different things. But um, that you said about the importance of beginning and end. So, if you were to take the so-called nihilist perspective seriously, as I think David Bentley Hart talks about this, you've got a movement of the will from nothing and to nothing. Is that, is that a firm? Yeah, that, uh, David's account of Nietzsche and is it the, it's not for the doors of the sea, it's the, the more recent one is really terrific. Ooh, excellent, thank you, Stanley. Um, I wanna go back to your shaft then and Hannah's Child, a theologian's memoir. So here are your long-awaited memoirs for, for many of us. So with genuine humility, I would say, you describe your struggles with faith intellectually and otherwise, how you've dealt with the reality of marriage to a mentally ill partner and the gift of um, friendships that have influenced your character. How does the, the greater Christian story, um, how has that provided a foundation and direction for you in your own life? And what, hope, what do you hope that others might take away from your personal story? If I hadn't have dedicated my life to God at 15 in Pleasant Mountain United Methodist Church, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So um, clearly what was going on in that was incoherent and stupid. But isn't it wonderful how the spirit works? <laughs> incoherent and stupid um, um, development. So I've been very fortunate uh, by being Christian has put me in um, wonderful uh, contact with extraordinary people. They're called Christians. Amen. Me too. Thank God. And yeah, definitely, I am incoherent and in everything else along with it. Um, I want to talk to you next about a cross-shattered church reclaiming the theological heart of preaching. So in that work, you show how the sermon is the best context for doing good theology. Can you tell us about um, why you're convinced that the recovery of the sermon as the context for theological reflection is so crucial if Christians are to negotiate the world in which we find ourselves? Well, the sermon makes me take scripture seriously. <laughs> And as a theologian, of course, there's almost nothing I can't explain away. <laughs> so having to preach is the kind of concreteness that, that I think we so desperately need. Yeah. Excellent. And um, 
Why are the sermons divided into four sections, then seeing, saying, living, and events? I don't know. They just had to have a division. I thought that made some sense. <laughs> characterization of them, that's all. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. And um, you show us that in Christian history, at least until recently, the sermon was demonstrably one of the primary places in which the work of theology was done. So um, what is the work, work of theology first and foremost? And how has, how has particularly theology become less scriptural? So you say about um, the sermon. Oh, I think uh, theology fundamentally is that to Jesus of scripture. And I don't do that very well, but uh, I think that's at its heart. And um, if you ever lose that, you lose the gospel. And why do you think then that um, modern theology has so often tried to appear as a form of philosophy and probably, it's fair to say, has lost the gospel? In many, We're afraid that uh, people will think we're incoherent. Uh, uh, becoming a philosopher today doesn't doesn't guard you against that, but uh, uh, it's uh, it's an attempt to do theology on a foundationalist basis. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a non-foundationalist. Thank you, Stanley. So, and another book that we may talk about, growing old in Christ. I want to just mention that one. Um, one of the hallmarks of contemporary culture is its lamentable attitude, I would suggest, towards aging and towards the elderly. So youth and productivity are celebrated in today's society, while the elderly are increasingly marginalized, it seems. This um, not only poses difficulties for older people, but it's also, I think, a huge loss for the young and middle-aged people alike. So um, we could all learn from, much from the elderly, including what I mean. <laughs> very old <laughs> I think uh, yeah it, we can learn so much I've learned so much from this channel and speaking to people elderly and um, well all ages but some elderly people and it's been a real privilege to, to learn from people and um, I think we can learn how to grow old and die in Christ and see that uh, witness at first time but we've, I would like to think that We've um, unfortunately cast people off to the side. Why do you think that is, um, say, in America? And I guess it's, it's similar in other countries in what we call the West, I guess. We don't grow old easily. I mean, I mean someone that has grown old uh, and, and fairly easily, um, uh, I'm... I'm increasingly understanding. I thought a lot about dying, but I hadn't, I hadn't thought much about growing old. <laughs> and and uh, what it means to grow old in Christ is, um, uh, is a subject that we need a good deal more work on. Excellent. I think um, Billy Graham actually in his sermons would talk about how in America, and it would be the same here, that people put all their investment into retirement and uh, that's their vision. They're imagining themselves being older and ret retired and living off their pension and so, off, so on, but they don't put any um, stock into eternity and 
the eschatological vision that we should have as Christians, which I thought was a really interesting way of describing it too. Okay, we'll go back to our little um, talk about growing old in Christ then, shall we? So um, let me ask you this then. Why did you believe it was important to bring together these essays from some of the top biblical and historical scholars? It's what I do. <laughs> It's what I do. It's what I was trying to do. I do it hopefully for the building of the Christian uh, church. But uh, if I didn't, if I hadn't turned it into a habit, I probably wouldn't still be doing it. But I'm still doing it. So next book, if we may, The Truth About God, The Ten Commandments, Christian Life. What do the Ten Commandments say, not just about the people who observe them, but about the true and living God? Um, God gave us the commandments to become a people capable of holiness. And um, they're not to be isolated one from the other. And uh, they, um, uh, I mean, they, the church has always been tempted to turn them into a natural morality, but there's no question that there is some um, commonality that all people think is wrong with theft, for example. But the Sabbath commandment cannot be a natural morality. Mm. So uh, how the Ten Commandments are seen as an ongoing, uh, uh, ongoing commitments for the formation of a community uh, is a continuing challenge for the church. Excellent. Okay, let's look at unleashing the scripture, freeing the Bible from captivity in America. I think that captures so much of the spirit of, of your work. Actually. <laughs> This, um, this provocative critique uh, of the uses and abuses of scripture in the American church shows how liberal, as we call it, historical, critical, and fundamentalist approaches or literal approaches um, to biblical scholarship have corrupted common use of the Bible. What were some of the failings of each of those elements then and are they the same now in 2020? I said that... Uh... The great problem of biblical interpretation in America is um, that we took the Protestant heresy of Sola Scriptura uh, and uh, turned it into solo text through the invention of the printing press and then gave it authority through the formation of something called the modern consciousness, which believes it can read difficult materials without spiritual guidance or uh, faithful observance. And uh, so um, the American Christian, thinking they can interpret and read the Bible on their own, has to uh, have the Bible taken away from them and have, have to learn to read it with uh, spiritual guidance. 
Oh, I thought that was just an obvious set of claims. <laughs> Excellent. And um, you talk about the actually living out the story by dedicated um, practitioners. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What that means? Well, uh, I say that one of the great gifts of Christianity is it gives you something to do. Um, people die of not having anything to do. Uh, Christians are given uh, something to do, prayer and the care of the poor, the widow, and so on. So um, it is a great thing to be a Christian um, because it's such a happy uh, uh, development that you're made part of a community that's going to tell you what to do. Mm, most interesting. Thank you, Stanley. I want to ask you now about a quite difficult and contentious issue, abortion. So you've written abortion. The Irish have gone crazy. <laughs> Sorry? I said the Irish have gone crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately. I was stunned. I, I was I assumed that the vote was going to uh, approve of abortion, but it was 67%, wasn't it, in favor? I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, where is Catholicism gone? What, have you, what has been being said for so long? Yeah, I think, um, well, it's, it's probably really co complicated, uh, <laughs> obviously, but I think a big part of it might be you've got the power of advertising as it were and the way it was presented so a lot of people were taken in it's obviously presented as a women's rights issue and freedom it's sold as in this kind of liberty libertine way and everything and then you have the church is kind of revealing. i think it was fundamentally i'm sure those um two reasons count but fundamentally it was we're damn tired of the catholic church yeah I think so. I think there's so much um, condemnation of the Catholic Church and their awful misdeeds. But I think part of it is that the government has managed to scapegoat the church because the government was involved in so much of that awful stuff too. But they have sold it like they're the savior figure. And um, I think that, that actually that part of it. And it's, it seems to be continuing now because they're withholding records that I think would incriminate the state. Uh, that was a thing in the Irish news recently. So, um, I don't know, it's pretty bleak in that respect. I want to ask you uh, why it is so important to understand abortion theologically distinctly and how might this change our minds to become more like Christ? Because it's important to understand and as Christians, we are formed into relationships that welcome children into the world as a gift. And that is one of the most fundamental moral uh, commitments one could have. And um, when, that, when, when you have children to make yourself happy, children are going to suffer deeply. Uh, so I think it, it draws ontologically on everything that makes us uh, good human beings. And uh, 
I, therefore, pro-choice and pro-life. They're disastrous alternatives. Uh, and uh, how to uh, get abortion in the context of what it means to be a people who are called to have children is um, almost impossible in our current context. So Resident Aliens, Life in the Christian Colony. This is actually the first book of yours that I ever read and it left a, an indelible impression upon me. Um, it remains a prophetic vision of how the church can regain its vitality, reclaim its capacity to nourish souls, and stand firmly against the illusions, pretensions, and eroding values of today's secularist world. So what is the nature of the church that you wanted to remind us of? And um, what has been most wrong with the church's relationship to the surrounding culture recently? Well, in terms of the latter, uh, we wanted to rule. <laughs> and uh, we weren't very good at it. And uh, we lost. And now that you've lost, you're free. <laughs> you can, you can uh, be a Christian. Uh, and um, the uh, problem, of course, is, uh, uh, at least in America, uh, people think they get to become a Christian on their own terms. Uh, it's, a, it's a disastrous presumption. <laughs> and uh, that's part of what Resident Aliens was uh, challenging. Mm -hmm. And how should Christians best incar incarnate their identity and character as resident aliens in a foreign land, especially, I think, in the internet age now? I think they, they will hardly will it. It'll be forced on them. <laughs> and uh, God's got a hell of a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stanley. So just to close up then, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment or that you still feel a passion to get involved with uh, in the future? I've got a book that's under consideration at the University of Virginia. And I've, I'm doing many occasional essays that I'm being asked to do on um, like advice to young theologians or that sort of thing. Um, I'm giving myself the possibility of uh, writing a retractions, which um, will imitate Augustine in the sense that he wrote retractions, but he didn't retract much. <laughs> 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 and uh, I'm, I'm just trying to give a biography of books that uh, I've written to remind myself what I think. So, mm. But I'm in no hurry. In, that doesn't need to reach the, the light of day. Hmm. Well, uh, we look forward to it anyway, and God willing, it will. Thank you for joining me today, Stanley. It's been a real pleasure, and God bless you. Oh, thank you very much, and I wish you the best. Thank you.